You know, it's about the, all of these cases, all these true crime that, cause you know, that's the thing. There's this push to turning, you know, like true crime podcasts to kind of need to look, creators need to look themselves in the mirror and not worry about making money in terms of just, you know, cashing in on somebody else's misery and, and realizing that the, this, these aren't stories. These are recounts of somebody's life and that there's people out there that are still living with that pain every single day, you know, and, and like I'm hyper cognizant of that. And, you know, and I make sure in my podcast that it's known. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Bob Mata, a longtime defense attorney and the host of the spectacularly rated true crime podcast, Defense Diaries. Bob has practiced law for two decades as a defense attorney. On Bob's 21st birthday, he received what he describes as the strangest and most unique birthday gift he had ever heard of. His father, who had been a defense attorney for the notorious serial killer, John Wayne Gacy, gave him a box with tapes between Gacy and his defense attorneys. Bob's father told him to hold on to them because, someday, he might have a use for them. 31 years later, still in the original box his father gave him, Bob found use for them and started the first season of Defense Diaries, a serialized podcast that's in its second season. The Gacy tapes included gems like when Gacy was asked whether he blamed his victims, and he said, quote, Yes, there's not one of them who did not die that I'm aware of that did not die through their own hand through their own wrongdoing. What caused season one of Defense Diaries to stand out was that Bob did not focus on true crime gore surrounding Gacy, but instead used the tapes as an avenue to tell the stories of the investigation and the victims, whose lives are, after all these years, little explored. In Bob's second case, he turned to the story of one of his own clients, Dr. Anthony Garcia, Garcia was accused of murdering people and their family members. He was said to have held responsible for derailing his career by getting him fired from Creighton University. The Garcia case began on March 13, 2008, in the Dundee neighborhood of Omaha, Nebraska, when Dr. William Hunter came home to find his 11-year-old son, Thomas, and the 57-year-old woman who cleaned their house, Shirley Sherman, brutally murdered. Five years later, a piano-moving crew arrived at the home of Dr. Roger Brumbach to find him and his wife Mary both dead. A few days later, another Creighton doctor's home was broken into. The police found a firearm that would fit the magazine that was found in the foyer of the Brumbachs. Dr. Garcia's credit card was used twice in the area of the Brumbach murders. Questionable internet searches were found on Garcia's phone and a suspicious to-do list beside a copy of his termination letter. A jury convicted Dr. Garcia in 2016, and he was put on death row. But Bob's podcast raises questions about whether the jury got it right. A graduate of Chicago Kent College of Law at the Illinois Institute of Technology 
and Eastern Illinois University, Bob also has a side pod called The Docket, where he tackles interesting cases such as the Adnan Saeed case in Maryland, the Delphi murders in Indiana, and the murders of the four college students at the University of Idaho. He tackles this from a non-traditional perspective of someone who's been on the defense side. Today, we're going to talk about Gacy, the Garcia case, and some of the cases in the news, as well as Bob's approach to defense work and the unique perspective he brings to podcasting in true crime, being a part of the defense bar, and his balanced approach where he focuses more on the rule of law and logic than the salacious details. So, Bob, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining to talk about what it's like to be a defense attorney, what it's like to be a podcaster in this space. And I don't know if you really know this, but uh, the way I first came across you was I was listening to the Prosecutors Podcast, which is a really great podcast by Bob and Alice, and it's one I recommend to a lot of people. You came on as a guest, and I just thought to myself, this is the first time in the true crime world, whether it's television or podcasts, that I heard a defense attorney really articulate the purpose of defense lawyers in our democracy and our society. And that just really captured my attention. So I'm really great to have this, glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. Hey, man, and I'm thrilled to be here. You know, and you and I kind of met, you had uh, engaged me on Twitter, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I really appreciated the things that you were tweeting at me, man, because, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I, I know what the perception of defense attorneys is generally, you know, so when when you kind of reached out to me, that struck a chord with me, and I'm, I'm always super appreciative of people that do that, because it lets me know that I'm I'm being heard and that what what I'm saying is, is being taken as how I want it to be heard. You know what I mean? Yeah. With people. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and, and Brett and Alice are great, you know, and, and like when I started in the game a couple of years ago, you know, I, I had reached out to them early. I was a fledgling pod, you know, they were already relatively big, so they didn't give me too much traction at that point. But, you know, I, I think they were keeping an eye on me. And, you know, they were kind of digging into some of the stuff that I was doing. And I think that they kind of realized that like, hey, this guy is pretty legit in terms of, you know, bringing the opposite perspective and he does it in a way that's respectful. Um, So I think that they appreciated that. And, uh, you know, then Brett. Brett hit me up and he's like, yo, you know, you want to jump on? I was like, been waiting, dude, patiently. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah, we, we started doing some collabs together and we've done a few things um, together and I always enjoy hanging with those two. So yeah. And, and um, in terms of my message and like I was telling you off air that I told you that I talk about on air in terms of trying to figure out when I was getting into the podcast. And, and I know that you gave an intro and, you know, I've been practicing law for 20 years. I've been a like a full-blown trial attorney, criminal defense side of it. And, you, you know, it's a, it's a soul crushing profession. It is. Yeah. It's, it's like there's the amount of weight that you carry as a defense attorney in particular. I, I don't know that there's any profession on the planet that you carry that much weight. And, and it's in the sense that 
I have the weight of the world on my shoulders in the sense that I am representing somebody whose either life and or liberty is at stake. And in our lives, aside from health, I don't know that there's anything more important than those two things. And obviously life and health intertwined, but that liberty side of it in terms of, you know, if they're looking at, you know, a term in prison or whatever the case may be, it's a lot to deal with. You know, it's like, like putting aside the horrors of the case itself, just understanding what's at stake and the fact that you can never turn it off. It's not like when I walk out of a courtroom, I'm done working for the day in the middle of a trial. It's quite the opposite. I mean, I'm just getting started, you know, because then I'm preparing for the next day. I'm trying to, to figure out who the state, whether if they're playing nice or not. A lot of times they don't tell me who they're going to be calling and in what order. So I'm having to try to guess from a, you know, a witness list of 50, 60, 70 people who they're going to be calling. So I'm trying to prepare cross-examinations going through all the records, police reports, the evidence, and trying to, you know, craft a, a you know, a cogent cross-examination. Mm-hmm. And so your mind's just constantly on it. You know, it's like, yeah. like in terms of tunnel vision, that's like where I'm at. So after 20 years, man, I just, I, I was burnt. Like there's no other way to put, you know, and I, you know, like I can't put it any other way. And that becomes a dangerous proposition as a defense attorney, you know, because like my wife and I, who's my partner, we like to think of ourselves as attorneys who give voice to the voiceless, you know, because we do represent the people, you know, I mean, the, make no mistake about it. The prosecution is the government, you know, and, and like, and if you think of it in terms of like that, they call them sort of like the people versus, but you know, I always yeah. like the, yeah, but it, it's the people of the state, right? <laughs> right. Illinois. <laughs> so like that, they, you know, they, they, kind of leave that the of the state part off, you know, and, and people kind of forget that, you know? Well, it's like, uh, I remember reading and you know, that Twitter conversation with you, one of the things that struck me about it was I, I kind of had a, I, I don't remember the exact topic, but I had a bit of a op- opposing position, but you were willing to engage and have the conversation. And, and it was really kind of, uh, it, it was just interesting that you were willing to have that, but, you know, you had this tweet recently that said something like the thing is defense attorneys defend we the people. And I thought that was just an interesting construct that really on both sides of the aisle, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors are working for the people. Is that right. fair? Yeah, I, in a way, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like the, the prosecutors theoretically are working for the victim, Right. And Mm -hmm. we are working towards making sure that the Constitution is being applied appropriately and fairly and justly to all of the people. So it's different. Like, and the bigger thing beyond that is that, you know, what defense attorneys do is we make sure to stave back any kind of government tyranny because the fact of the matter is, is if you have cops who are out there doing dirty if they're violating people's constitutional rights and it, it, it you know like people that are kind of like well i'm not a criminal it doesn't matter you know because i don't break the law well the reason that you can feel that secure in that particular like realm that you don't have to worry about it is because defense attorneys are calling cops and government agencies that violate constitutional rights by doing those things that people call technicalities like where 
say for instance, we have a case where, you know, we filed a motion to suppress because we found that they violated the defendant's fourth amendment rights in terms of either getting the warrant or it was a warrantless search that there was no probable cause, all those things that matter so, so much to all of us as citizens that stop the cops from being able to just kick anybody's door in, you know, to be able to pull you over and search your vehicle without any kind of probable cause. So when we call them out on that, okay, and we say, look, you did this dirty. And if it turns into a thing where the judge says, you know what, you're right, you violated their constitutional rights and I'm going to suppress the evidence, that that bite, you know, that that real bite, instead of it just being a bark where it has an actual impact, and then the state then loses the evidence, that is a deterrent for mm-hmm. that cop to do it the next time. So without criminal defense attorneys filing those motions that people call technicalities, which are actually the constitution, uh, we're living in a much much different country. You know? yeah. so, like the way that I put it in simple terms is we police the police. And right. if we're not there to do it, there's no one no one there to do it. You could say, well, what about internal internal affairs? That's a that's a conflicted thing altogether when you think about it. So, yeah, it, it's different. They they do kind of represent the people, but we represent the people. You know, they they represent the rights of victims is what they do. We represent society. There's not that saying about cops, the thin blue line, it, you know, it, I think with defense attorneys, right? Like maybe it's not the thin blue line, but it's the line between us and having our liberties arbitrarily taken. You know, if you think about the average prosecutor's life, tons of cases, all sorts of things going on. Expediency is a huge part of their job. Right. You know, not necessarily looking at all the the evidence that if they, you know, and I have friends who are prosecutors and they'll say they pay attention to cases very differently based on who the defense attorney is on the other side of it. Right. right? And that was striking to me. Right. Um, and, you know, you were kind of alluding to that idea that defense attorneys are kind of maligned until, of course, you need one. Right. Yeah. And I was wondering what, what attracted you to defense law? You know, I know your father was a defense attorney. Yeah. It's, it's a great question. And yeah, I mean, obviously on the forefront, it was my dad, you know, but I grew up in a, like a, a town called Oak Park, Illinois, and it was, and continues to be uh, a very progressive town in terms of thinking. You know, I, I had, I was fortunate enough to, to grow up in an area that was truly integrated. You know, I came out of that town thinking right about things in terms of the world at large, um, which gave me a huge advantage in terms of like, I, I can be in any situation and feel in complete comfort. You know what I mean? Which mm-hmm. is, is a rare thing. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a massive part of this country where that's simply not the case where, you know, people do, you know, so it's like, I'm socially and, you know, like equality wise, extremely liberal. Like my biggest thing is, you know, like without getting into politics at all, because I never touch it on my podcast, but to me, the biggest thing on, on, you know, on the table in terms of this country is equality for everybody, right? Be whether it be based on color, whether it be, you know, based on gender, whether it be, you know, based on sexual preference, whatever the case may be, I don't care because everyone should be on the same level playing field, period. There's a, and no one is ever going to convince me otherwise yeah. because that's the wrong way to think. There, there is no right answer from that side of it, period. 
So like for me, that's always the basis of it. And you know, what I started to realize, I was a sociology major, man, you know, which <laughs> is, is incredibly useless in terms of like, unless you want to be a professor or a social worker. Sociology, right. Yeah, right. And I was a social worker for five years, you know, before I went to law school, because I wanted to work with people and I wanted to help people. And, you know, what I realized early, early on as a young man is that in particular, because of where I had the advantage of growing up is that people of color you know, we're being shit on. Right. Like, like from, from the onset of this country. And I took great offense to it. And I was, there was no part of me that was going to have any hand in putting a disproportionate amount of people of color in prison based on bullshit. What did you see when you were, when you were doing social work? I know Oak Park's outside of Chicago, right? Right. Right. It's actually the first, it's a very urban suburb. It's eight miles. It's the first suburb out of the city of Chicago. Like I grew up like on the, the Austin, Austin area is underserved area, uh, high crime area, you, you know, low income. And, you know, so I grew up like right on that street. So like right on Austin. So I like I saw everything, you know, like I, I saw like the realities of poverty and what, what it can drive people to do. You know, I saw the reality of how poverty can then turn into addiction, uh, whether it be drugs and alcohol and how that interplays with mental health and all these things that are just realities in our society that what I found were being completely ignored by the government and by the prosecution in terms of, you know, when they're deciding whether or not to charge somebody or they're deciding whether or not to offer somebody a plea and what that plea looks like in conjunction to what was done. And, you know, so all those things kind of just like added up to me to a point where, you know, when I, when I'm a social worker and and funny enough, man, I I had come out of college and I was trying to get a, a job as a white male with the department of uh, children and family services. I wanted to work with kids. I wanted to help kids. I wanted to get kids out of bad situations and I would have been great at it. And I went and took the state exam three times and got a hundred percent all three times. And I could not get an interview with the, oh, wow. not an, not, not one took the exam three times. So I was starting to get the feeling, you know, and look, social work is, is a, a female dominated profession. That's why, of course, they're grossly underpaid and undervalued, you know, because that's how our society is, you know. So I knew I was kind of an odd duck in that, in that particular area of employment. And, you know, so ultimately I ended up getting, I got a job with Catholic Charities working with seniors. And like I, I, I took a job down in a, an area called Harvey, Illinois which is entirely black. Like it's, it's a entirely black suburb, you know? So when I, I went to go work down in Catholic charities and I walked in, I was like literally the only white guy that worked in there. And like, it was all like older black women and they loved me. <laughs> it was like, they did, they did. They could, you know, they could just sense I was a genuine human being and that I was a good person. And they took me in man, like bear hug style. And you know, I loved that. It ties back to something very deep, I think, for the black community. I remember my grandmother telling me, if, you know, she grew up in the civil rights movement. We're not grew up. She was a little bit older in the civil rights movement. But, you know, she wants me to point to me that the white journalists and activists and lawyers who came down, 
you know, who put themselves at risk when they didn't need to put themselves at risk, but also sort of brought that and not to get political, but the power of their privilege to the discussion was unbelievably impactful. And that always stuck with me. And it's true, man. Like I, I would, I, I would go when, so I was a, a case manager, right? And I, I like my job was to go out and go to folks' homes and, you know, because they may have called in and I was either trying to set them up with like um, Meals on Wheels or if they needed help, like getting to the market and, you know, because they weren't able to drive, like all those different services that they may need, you know, and I'd go in, I'd do the intake. And, you know, so when I was down in Harvey, like I'd go, into like a, like I'd knock on the door and like a nice older lady would open it and, you know, and I'd come in and I'd say, I'm from Catholic charities. I'm here to, to help you out. And, you know, and, and with seniors, most of them really just wanted to talk more yeah, than anything. Right, they, wanted right. the, they wanted the company, man. So like I was notorious for like making my appointments last way too long because <laughs> I become engaged in conversation because I, I like to listen to people and I like to engage and I, and I want to hear them and I want them to felt, you know, f- feel heard. It was important to me because I, I, I could sense immediately that that was something that they needed desperately. I felt that I was giving them a service that I was more than happy to, to supply them with, you know, so it was a win-win in that sense. But, you know, I'd go in and man, I'm telling you, eight out of 10 of my clients would be like, you know what? I, I just want to tell you, you know, you're the first white man that's ever been in my house. Right. And that's so meaningful. Dude. And I was like, and I said, well, I said, my hope is that um, I'm a, a good representation. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. It's like, no. you know, cause that was important to me, but it, man, it, like it, it, it would give me goosebumps like every time, you know? And it was like, so yeah, I mean like, so yeah, all that was very formative, even though I was like in my early twenties at that point and had kind of like pushed off law school. I mean, it had always been a concept. My father wasn't like overbearing with like, you've got to go to law school. He wasn't that guy. You know, I mean, he was a public defender for years and then, you know, got the Gacy case and then he did the, you know, his own private practice for a long time, but he was always a criminal defense guy, you know? So, so that you know, being able to see that see those communities, see that disparity. I remember, you know, formerly, you know, I was a journalist covered, um, covered, you know, Manhattan Supreme Court and federal cases. And it always struck me how my friends and people I knew really thought our system was very sort of fair. And I got, I got a window, right? I, I got a window into it because, you know, I'm talking to the police commissioner and the deputy police commissioner, and we're having these conversations where they're telling me, like, what are the real factors going into this high profile case? Like you could see the victim mattered, you know, how prominent they were. But when I moved into mental health, there's this, this one crazy story. I had this client who, you know, like if you picked up the DSM and there were like pictures in it, he was like the classic case of manic depression. His triggers were so high. He would get psychotic. He ended up like in this psychotic break doing this um, home break-in. And the backstory, the real quick backstory, it was that he broke into the home of a guy who had ran over his friend, ran over a kid on the street and had gotten off, right? He had gotten off really wealthy guy. And, you know, my client had just become really fixated with him. He wasn't trying to do any harm. Right. But this, you know, so there was a deal with the prosecutors where he was going to get mental health treatment. And then the victims, the people whose house he broke into, would actually shot him in the ankle during it. But 
they they objected and then the state all of a sudden moved from like deal to mental health to throwing the book at him like looking at right. 20 20 plus years and the advice that his family got from his defense attorney was look make a huge donation to the head of the county board of supervisors mm-hmm. and that'll move it and i just i, I mean they couldn't afford something like that but i it just made me think this is how our system really works yeah. yeah absolutely rigged it's it's like you know and that, you know that that in terms of talking like at the burnout because allison and i realized immediately like we both came into it we both were going to be like from the get knew we were going to be trial litigators i'm a storyteller i always tell people on my podcast at the end of the day when you're talking about trial attorneys you're talking about storytellers right that's what it is you know it's it's like i i just tweeted the other day or i said it in my podcast like i did something on the adnan syed case uh, that kind of recent development you know i was talking about this fact i say it all the time i'm like we don't know like two people know what happened it's right who are no longer with us in the case of a murder yeah adnan syed is the baltimore county maryland teenager who was convicted for the 1999 killing of his classmate Heyman lee she was uh, kidnapped and strangled. He was the one whose story led to the podcast Serial and whose conviction was vacated in 2016, reinstated in 2019, vacated again in 2022, and reinstated earlier this year. And the perpetrator. Those are the only – the rest of us are all guessing. You know, for attorneys and law enforcement, it's an educated guess, but it's still that. So, like, when people try to give me definitives – I reject it, you know, it, because it's like you can't know. Now, if, if there's some smoking gun evidence, if we have some incredibly strong direct evidence, that's a different thing. But that's not most cases. Most cases are circumstantial, you know, where you're having to put pieces together. So, as much as I love Brett and Alice, they're way too definitive on the <laughs> uh, yeah. they know, acting like they know what happened when they don't. You know, can they put together a persuasive argument? Yeah, but it's just that, it's not fact. You know, I mean, they can always just some best guest, right? Yeah, you know. So I mean, but like, but at the end of the day, I I understand that that it's a story. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like that, like like me practicing and being a trial attorney for 20 years and really trying cases. Like like I like a legitimate trial attorney. I've tried some unbelievable cases. Coming into that, knowing exactly what it is to be a trial attorney and understanding the concept that at the end of the day, at the heart of it, trial attorneys are storytellers because that's what you're trying to do is impart the story that you believe actually happened or is as close to what actually happened to the jury and trying to get them to come to your side of it and to think, you know, like, look, you know, because it's like, again, we just don't know, (laughs) you know, it's like all the cases, like, it tortures me like cases where I've tried a case and, and like I'm sitting there and the jury comes back in a way that like stuns me where like Alice and I were like, wow, we get like, we nailed that. <laughs> you know, we killed that. And then they come back with a guilty. We're like, what, what happened? <laughs> like, what is going on? You know? So it's like, yeah, man, it's, it's crazy. I was just thinking you go to a crime scene, right? You yeah. talk to five people who witnessed it. Right. And there are five different stories. Yep. Like, so no one really, really knows at the end right. of the day what happens in a lot of these situations. Why did you decide to yeah, make- Yeah, eyewitnesses cool? are the worst. 
You know, yeah, oh, terrible. They, they really are. Like terrible. in terms of in, in, in terms of like direct evidence, and that's what they consider direct evidence. Like an eyewitness is considered direct evidence, whereas like circumstantial is like the the probably the most commonly used analogy is like you go to bed, there's no snow on the ground, you wake up, there's three inches of snow on the ground, even though you didn't see it happen, you know that it snowed overnight, right? So that's circumstantial evidence. Whereas direct is you're actually you you've you've got an eyewitness who saw something. Now when you factor in everything that's involved with an eyewitness in terms of whether or not they're the victim and like trying to take in like the considerations of, you know, was it a gun? And are you looking at the gun or are you looking at the person who shot you? You know, more, more often than not, they're looking at the gun. You know, if you've got witnesses that are, you know, seeing something happen, if there's a gun involved, were you ducking? <laughs> you, know, you know, like how good of a look did you get? If it's not like a, a like a murder where something horrific happens and it's just kind of like a robbery, and you know, or or if you're just a witness who saw somebody that you later find out is being accused of something, and at that moment in time you have no reason to commit anything to memory as to what that person looked like or what they were wearing. You know how much how much faith can you put in that that recount? You know what I'm saying? It's a different thing if you're playing the game concentration and you're trying to remember where the two cards that match are on the board. You're focused on every detail. Right, well, because right, because that's you. You know, you're doing that when you're in a situation where you just see somebody walking by and it's just a day, and you have no reason to <laughs> to commit that person to memory. But then you find out on the news, like, oh my god, I was like, I was there. Yeah, I've seen this guy. And then you go and you give a, re- you know, it's like, it's, it's just not, it's, it's not reliable evidence, you know, and, and it's, it's always like that. It's the worst evidence there is. In my that opinion. makes me think of like the University of Idaho case last year where four college students were murdered in, right. um, yeah, in their house. And there was a, you know, we found out when the probable cause affidavit came out that there was a there was a witness and that whole story is bizarre and there's way more to, to, <laughs> yeah. to that. so so with that case like that is in one of my positions which surprises people sometimes but like with, and look everything's going to go to trial i'm huge on innocent until proven guilty but but that guy gives me the vibe that he's the guy and i can tell that he can roll like i won't say that guy's name like i never say it in my podcast mm-hmm. i never tweet like i will not give that guy what i know that guy and probably wants probably wants you know so like like i just call him the, but yeah that that like exactly like i did an entire episode about that particular witness when i was going through the pca you know because that we were getting a very different story from law enforcement initially you know and, and when you start to pick apart you know what they wrote in the pca I then begin to wonder how much of that was actually what she had said or how much of that was what she was fed. Because when you look at when that that case broke and initially it was like, well, how are there two surviving roommates? And they had both of them, if you'll remember, that they were asleep down on the first floor. It wasn't until the PCA came out that we came to learn that allegedly she was on the second floor, the same floor that like uh, Zana and, and Ethan were on. And that not only that, that she allegedly saw the killer. Zana and Ethan or Zana Kernoodle and Ethan Chapin, the University of Idaho students who along with their classmates, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gunclavis were stabbed to death in the middle of the night in their home about you know, a hundred feet off the University of Idaho campus. 
So it became a much different thing. And that the killer walked right by her and she noticed the bushy eyebrows. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's theoretically it's dark and she sees that he's got some kind of mask on and, you know, and it's like, well, if he saw, if she saw him close enough to see the bushy eyebrows, you would assume that he probably saw her and why is she still alive? And, you know, but then when you kind of like really dig into it and like, you know, with the no call until noon the next day to 911, and then it starts to come out that there were tons of kids in that house for hours right. prior to calling law enforcement, that case is going to be a mess. I'm just telling you right now. And that's the thing. Like, yeah. it's not that, you know, it's not that he didn't do it or that there aren't things that suggest it. But there are things that certainly suggest that there's way more to the story that we're not getting that may be favorable to this case. Hundred percent, and like, and and frankly, you know, when you you see the DNA on the sheath, we're like, oh, done, he did it. You know what I mean? But we don't know anything about that DNA. Like, I've I've had enough DNA cases to where, you know, we we know only that it was a single source found on the snap of the sheath, and that's it. We don't know the quality of the sample. We don't know if it's a full or partial sample. You know, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of litigation about that particular DNA, you know, and, and, and they did a genealogical DNA. Like, I mean, we, it's at that point when they did the PCA, it was consistent with his father's, you know, it's like his father could not be excluded as being the contributor, not him, but we all share that YSTR is males. You know, so right. his, his YSTR chromosome, like all through the family line, like my YSTR is going to be the same as, as my great, great grandfather's, you know, if they were to run our sample. So, yeah, it'll be interesting, man. But like, you, you know, the, the con- potential for contamination of that scene is massive. It's going to that's it's going to be a sticky one. It, it, like, we're not going to get to watch it because it's going to be just like they're doing Lori Vallow. Like it's Idaho. in Idaho. They're yeah. going to run the same. They're going to run the same game. You know, and everybody's going to be like disappointed because it was such a huge story, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, like, like if you listen to one of my docket episodes and I forget which one it is, but I give a 10 minute diatribe soapbox style on the irresponsibility that I saw taking place online and on social media with these, you know, arms, uh, armchair sleuths and you know, web sluice and, you know, just people thinking they can crack the cases and accusing people online, you know, from behind their computer, having no access to evidence. And it was reckless. It was scary. And it was like, I I had never seen it like that. Like they had the one guy from the Twitch video by the food truck, like hoodie guy. Yeah. The the hoodie guy was like the guy convicted, convicted and done. Oh yeah. He drove five hours to his parents' home and then he flew to Africa and he's been in high. I'm like, wow, dude, I'm like, can anybody substantiate? Like I was tweeting. I'm like, can anyone substantiate anything that all these people are saying? Where are you getting this information? Or are you just pulling it out of your ass? You know? So I'm like, yeah, like, man, that, that really disturbed me. And, and like kind of what I'm seeing when and like news nation kind of grew out of the earth from that case, from that they case, blew yeah. up that Brian Enton, like made like made his career that case. He decided I'm going to go out there and cover that guy got like a, he's a, anchor now from that case you know and and it's one of those things where they are reckless yeah they are reckless in the stuff they report and there's certain people out there online that are reckless in terms of speculating because i'm real big like i didn't report on that case at all until the pca dropped because i do not do that 
Like I am never going to like, I am not trying to get like clicks and likes and all that stuff by just speculating on things. I want the facts. I want the evidence. That's the only thing that matters. The rest of it, because it all play. And I'm so adamant about that because I've been living it for 20 years, trying cases with people that have been predisposed coming into a trial because what they've read in the press. Well, because you know, prosecutors yeah. get a great advantage because huge, they're already investigating the case. They get the PCA out first. So their yep. story, you mentioned the thing about being a storyteller, their story gets told first. Right. And people don't understand that, Jason. Like people do not get that when they're, they, everything that you hear in the media initially when a case breaks is all the prosecution's theory of the case. And that's all it is at that point. Unvetted, unchecked. It's what their theory is based on the evidence that they have. And that's all it is. That's the entire point of a trial is to go in and vet the evidence. Because again, it goes back to my original statement. You know who wasn't at that crime scene? The prosecutor. That's what they're, they're, they're giving. <laughs> or, Brian. Yes. <laughs> right. or Brian. Or Brian. Exactly. Or, you know, any of the other ones that are out there. I'm not going to name names, but. You know, you know who you are. Yes, right. <laughs> so you mentioned the thing about uh, DNA, which made me think of your second season as Tunnel Vision. It's on the yeah. Anthony Garcia case. And yeah. he was a doctor. And I'll, right, I'll right. let you tell the story. But one of the things that struck me about that, that it, it's sort of like we live in the CSI world where everyone's been conditioned to believe that forensic evidence is definitive, that it's easy to get. It hurts prosecutors on one hand. But I also think it hurts defendants in another hand because people hear there's DNA evidence without any details about it. And they're like, ah, guilty. He's the guy. Yeah. Right. So tell me a little bit about why you decided to make the jump into podcasting and a little bit about that Garcia case. Because I think most people, if they know of him, because I know there have been some documentaries, they just think of him as this doctor who's doctor slash serial killer who wiped out you know right so many yeah people. so like, it kind of like my jump into podcasting was it's really been a lifelong journey like unwittingly you know like as a young kid and i was an only child i used to sit ironically um in my room and i would do like i have a pretty good radio voice and and that like comes from me as a as a kid practicing like i would just do voices and i sat on this like old push button recorder and i would make cassette tapes like hours and ironically as you note i think in your intro you know when i'm 21 i'm giving all these gacy tapes of my father's interviews with his then client john Wayne gacy which he recorded on the exact recorder that i recorded 10 you know 10 12 years prior as a young boy that he was recording gacy so i got these tapes you know and then when i went to college i'm like yeah, I didn't know if I wanted to go to law school. I kind of wanted to get into broadcasting, like kind of at that point. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it would be a great gig as being like a sports broadcaster. I love <laughs> sports. I'd love to watch and talk about that. That would be a blast. Didn't do it. Got into the social work game. Um, you know, did the law thing for 20 years, trial lawyer. Um, I was pretty successful at it, you know, in terms of like, I was a good, good closing. I gave good closing arguments. I was a pretty compelling lawyer. You know, sometimes the facts are so bad, you just can't win. But, you know, that's, that's, you know, if they got the evidence, they got the evidence. That's one of the things I always try to tell people. The cops did their jobs right and they've got the strong evidence. The guy's going to go down. Yeah. Know? What does the defense attorney's job become at that moment? I, to, to make sure that the, the number one, first and foremost, that the defendant 
received a fair trial and that the constitution was followed period like i mean when you have bad facts like that's the first lesson my father taught me is like keep your head down like i you know just make sure that you're like at all costs protecting the constitution and make sure that your client gets a fair trial you know and, and like and they all interplay with one another you know because like i said if they've got the facts and they got the evidence and they've done their job properly they're going to get a conviction you know a lot of most criminals are not smart you know i mean it's like they're not master we don't we don't have a bunch of like moriarty's running out here like mastermind criminals right. you know like 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 a lot of times it's spur of the moment a lot of times if it's even you know planned there's mess ups because yes, you know it's scary committing yeah. crime right you know? like unless you're a complete and total sociopath and you're like you're remorseless like gacy was like that guy didn't think about anything like it like it was like making a ham sandwich like killing somebody it was like that's the most disturbing thing about gacy it's like it's impossible to relate to him or even think of him as a human because he just lacks that that com- like that entire chunk of what makes us human like it doesn't exist within him. So like when you listen to those tapes and you hear him talk about, you know, killing these young boys and men, it's like, it, it's just, it blows your hair back in a way, not in a good way, you know, it's yeah. like, wow, this guy's. So ultimately, you know, 20 years, I, I had these tapes. I had been tinkering with the idea of doing a podcast. I, I fell in love with podcasting and podcasts in general. I'd always been like a AM radio nerd. Like I always listen to like a lot of talk radio, so I've always enjoyed it. I'm an auditory guy. So when Serial dropped, listen to Serial, I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I, I couldn't have been more engaged. And, and I listened to it like a couple of years after it was out. Like I wasn't on the front end. It was like, I just kept like when the buzz built, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to check this out. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, so like it, it like it, at that point, the seed was planted. And then I had it's these a bit like a documentary without the constraints of time. Exactly. Or that's exactly. That's a perfect description of what a podcast is. It's the it's the doc without the, the constraints of time where you can really flesh the story out. And like, you know, you're in my second season. Like I'm not doing what is typical in this genre of true crime mm-hmm. podcast where I have an eight to 12 episode. Yeah. I mean, both my first seasons are highly personal. You know, my father was Gacy's attorney. That guy was a weird part of my life for 40 years and I had a lot to tell. And, you know, I was focusing on things that they had never focused on with respect to him. And it wasn't Gacy. I wanted to focus on the victims. I wanted to focus on the investigation. I uncover just the most mind blowing story in the history of that case that like somehow was not national news, but is an absolute fact and not a theory that they had planted the most important piece of evidence to get him. Right. Which is like, dude, dude, like it was like when the cop told me that, like when I was sitting there in this interview with Mike Albrecht and, you know, and they've all done 50, 60 interviews. And I had pitched Joe Berlinger that idea that he ended up dropping on Netflix. That was my pitch. Oh, really? Yeah, I had reached out to him and said, hey, man, like after he had dropped the the Bundy tapes thing under that um, conversations with the killer kind of series that he has going. And I just as a flyer, you know, I, I had watched it that night. I picked up my iPad. I Googled him, found his email address, said, hey, I, I think I might have some tapes that you're interested in. They're, they're much different than anything else that anyone's ever heard because they're not some interview on death row where the guy's just pontificating and 
you know, self-flatulating. And, you know, this, this is an attorney and a defense attorney preparing his client for trial and Gacy waived privilege because that's how he thought Sam and my father were going to get paid on a book or a movie deal because he had run out of money. Ah, I was wondering about that piece. Yeah. Of yeah. So like, and he had, he had waived. So they were free game, um, you know, in terms of us being able to play the sound. Like, and I, I didn't have the privilege problem with him. You know, because he wasn't my client, but you know, I didn't want to get my dad in a jam. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But but I I knew that the way I've always known that there was the waiver. So that wasn't you know. So I negotiate with Berlinger for nine months, and this is all building up to how I got it to back in the early two thousands, right? That uh, no, like so no, Berlinger's thing just came out like last year. Oh, okay. I was thinking of negotiations. No, no, no. So this. No, the oh, with the tapes. No, yeah, yeah, Casey yeah. was in '78, man. Like that. Kid. Oh no, 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 no. I, I, I was just thinking your conversations with Berlinger. No, yeah, no, Berlinger. This is like two years ago, right before I started okay, the pod. Wow. So, wow. like, you know, I, I negotiate with them for nine months. We can't come to a deal on licensing the tapes. You know, the value of the tapes is the sound. Once they're out there, they have no intrinsic value. I mean, yeah, some kind of weirdo collector might want to buy them, but in terms of the true value, you know, it's the sound, it's what's on them. You know, it had never been heard. It's a historic case, you know, in a gross way, but it is, you know, I mean, it's just one of those cases in criminal justice history that is a big one. So I ultimately, and I had been tinkering with the concept of doing a podcast. And so the pandemic hits and I was about halfway through it. And it was the first time in 20 years that I get to step back from the practice of law and breathe mm-hmm. and not have the crushing pressure that is on me. Like had been like every day of my life, no matter whether it's weekday weekend, a constant worry, constant anxiety about everything that's going on in, in your practice, your clients, the cases coming up trials impending, like, like that Garcia thing, dude, Yeah, three years trying that case. Oh like, yeah. I thought I was going to have a nervous breakdown like with that case, because it was like, it was a battle to the death between us and the state. Like my job there, they're trying to put my client to death. I am absolutely going to positively make sure that they prove beyond a reasonable doubt that my client did it because I have to sit there and live with the fact that my client's getting executed. And if I don't do my job to the best of my ability and go as hard as I can, where I can look myself in the mirror and say, Hey, you know what? I've laid it all out there. I laid Your whole family was no turn, right? Oh, dude, Your whole my, family. My was... wife and my father tried the case with me. Like you, we haven't even gotten to the part with Allison where, they, and they hated us. We were Chicago lawyers. We were out of towners. They looked at us as big city lawyers, and we. How did you guys even end up on it? The brother, his brother, okay. found us. His brother okay. out in California, Fernando, found us, and they liked us. And I, I, I have a feeling because my father was kind of out of counsel with our firm at that point that they had Googled like serial killer lawyer. <laughs> and like, I think that's how we kind of popped up. And then, uh, you know, I had like a long, but that's, that's a different. So at any rate, pandemic hits, I'm in the middle of writing a book. I was writing a fictional true crime book. And, you know, I, I told Allison, I said, look, because it, it, it's a serious conversation. I mean, she's my partner. We have a small boutique firm and we've handled everything together. We do all our trials together. We're a team, like to the core. And I said, look, I, I want to take a shot at this. I said, I'm, you know, I haven't been happy the last four or five years practicing. It's killing me. It's crushing my soul. Like I, like, I can't live the rest of my life being miserable. You know, I'm like, will you, you know, will you support me? And she's like, of course. 
I'm like, oh, okay, well, I know you'll do that. But beyond that, like, are you okay with me leaving this massive burden on you of like carrying our practice forward without me being there, man? Mm. It was a huge, huge ask. You know, yeah. like Allison forever and ever is the hero of this story. And, you know, so I, she says, yes, of course I will. You know, and I, I gave her the promise. I said, look, I am not going to go into this anything other than full bore. Like I am going to put my head down. I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to do everything that I need to do to make sure that this thing is successful. This isn't going to be some hobby thing and I'm going to be all in. And, you know, so, and I knew going in, my first season was going to be Gacy. I had that first source material. What I very quickly realized is I had no technical skill in terms of <laughs> making a podcast. And, and like, you know, and it was obviously important to me if I want to take this massive risk at like at the age of 50, you know, and leave this practice and like take this, this chance that I had to do it right. And I realized immediately that I, like, I didn't have the, the back end side of it to make it sound good. Like I knew I could do the writing. I knew I could do the research and I knew I could tell the stories, but I couldn't make it sound like a good podcast should sound. So, you know, it's like, I know the horrors that came along with COVID and the shutdown for me, it was like the, a godsend, you know, like it was huge. It was, it was, it was everything. It was the break. And then it allowed me to catch my breath and reassess. And then I'm able to, you know, like convince my wife to let me to, you know, take the shot. And then I, I'm, I'm like thinking, and I have a lot of friends in the music industry and I had a buddy down in new orleans and he was of course starving to death because he was a sound engineer for you know, the music <laughs> industry and he had not worked in two years you know everything was shut down so i hit him up i'm like yo man i'm like do you know what a daw <laughs> a, a daw is he's like yeah idiot i work with one every day of my life i'm like oh my god i'm like that's amazing i'm like hey man you know i'm gonna do this podcasting he's like i've never even heard a podcast i'm like really I'm like, well, check out a couple of them. He's like, I'm like, would you be interested? He's like, I need a producer for it. He's like, book me a ticket. So Darren Wood, who's my producer and my friend before that, but you know, who's amazing, Cre you know, creatively, like him and I are in lockstep. Like I didn't have to tell him how I wanted it to sound. You know what I mean? It's like he got, he nailed the feel in terms of how I wanted it to sound. Cause I like my pods just very different than other true crime pods. You know? Yeah. And that's a, actually one of the things that stuck out to me, not just sort of like coming from the defense uh, perspective or telling, you know, it, looking at it from the perspective of both the prosecution, the defense and victims. But you right, do right. really look at it through the lens of telling a nuanced story, which is sort of part of what like the criticism of true crime, right. a lot of criticism of coverage is the nuance is what's what's right. missing and that i mean it stuck me it stuck out to me i'll tell you a funny story about the gacy thing that revelation that they planted evidence when i was mm -hmm. uh working in new york a detective who was working in public information who had been this guy joe pentangelo if you've ever seen law and law and order the, yeah. the horseback uh cop whenever they bring a horseback cop that's joe oh really <laughs> yeah that's he great. said this and i don't know if this is a joke or not but he said hey just because they planted evidence doesn't mean they didn't get the guilty guy. And right. I couldn't tell whether he was joking or not, but that just popped in my mind when uh, you had the Gacy revelation. But to the to the point about nuance, you know, I had I had read about the Garcia case before, and you know, I had I had heard different pieces of it, you know, 
the cliched killer doctor, except for he was doing it, you know, he wasn't doing it in the hospital. Right. Like the nuance in tunnel vision just really struck me because I, I went into t- tunnel vision thinking there's no way this dude is going to get me to think that A, there's any doubt about this case, or B, that anything went wrong in it. And uh, yeah, you shifted my opinion. <laughs> and do, like, see, I, in that case, I knew going in. You know, and it's a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier in the sense that it's a it's a theory, it's a narrative, right? And the state's theory, super compelling, right? I mean, like you, you hear yeah. like how they land on this thing and, and like this. Yeah, when I'm hearing your res, uh, your termination letter plus a to-do list that sounds like a murder list is under your sink and totally. is involved, I'm like, okay, guilty. Right. And wait, wait till I get to the DNA. Like I haven't even gotten to the trial yet. So as, as you know, cause you've listened to the pod, like, I mean, this is going to be a 50 episode podcast and it's going to be, none of it has been like gratuitous. You know what I mean? Like I, everything that I put in there, I felt was necessary. What does Garcia think about you doing it? Does he, does he even oh, know? He or doesn't, He doesn't even know. Like, okay. I, I, like I, like and that'll be part of it. Like he he was by the time we got to trial, he was so mentally ill. Like that trial should never have gone. We challenged our our client's competency three times. Hmm. They were torturing him in there. He was in solitary for three years, twenty three hours a day in his cell, no human contact. Yeah, no one can say stay sane or competent. No one can. No one can. I mean, and he, and he was he was gone. You know, like we were fighting like cats and dogs. They kept them in solitary. Their rationale was that because he had worked as a, a doctor in a prison in Indiana for a couple of years, that he had the ability to be able to potentially escape. <laughs> that okay, was why they start. kept him in solitary. For years. <laughs> oh my God, dude. And when we start the the Gacy thing, I'd say probably about like, like 15, 20 episodes and we get it like a, an a DM from this guy is like, Hey, you know, I, I recognized your name from the Garcia case. And I just wanted to let you know that I was the nurse in the prison that was administering a tranquilizer to Anthony Garcia. Really? Did you know about trial. that? I did, did you not know, know about it. Oh, wow. Like, and, and dude, like my client slept through his death penalty case. It didn't matter. I tried the hell out of the case. I gave a four hour closing argument and the science, when you start, because here's the thing about Garcia, everything that everyone has heard about Anthony Garcia's case has come from one source, and that's Todd Cooper's book. Right. Todd Cooper was an absolute lackey for the state. Like I, like I had a war with that guy. I'm like, quit trying my client in the press, you scumbag. I'm like, quit doing it. Like you're, you're, you're hurting the chance of the victims getting justice by doing this. You're trying the case in the press because you're being leaked information from he was the prosecutors the who wrote that the book what was it path pathological that's what, I, that's what i'm saying it's like him and harry cordis whoever yeah. Uh, yeah like but todd cooper was the beat reporter for the omaha world herald mm-hmm. but this guy was unequivocally for three years trying my client in the press and that's what i'm saying like this isn't my opinion this is what happened the prosecution and or law enforcement was leaking the information that he would never have otherwise and then he would put out double paged, like in, in the Omaha World Herald, you know. So 
this guy had Anthony Garcia like in his timeline. They he had the entire case, and it was every day for three years. You know, our picking our jury for that, it was the it was so polluted that the jury pool. Everyone had heard about the case. Everyone had formed an opinion. Like we did a poll. Like I obviously tried to get it out of that county. We filed a motion to change venue immediately. I hired a polling company to poll the good citizens of Omaha. Uh, and of Douglas County to find out exactly where they were. We crafted five questions and it was a telephonic poll and it came back that it was stunning. It was like 94% of the people had heard of the case. 90% of them had reached a, an opinion and 90 of those, 90% of those people wow. more, all thought he was guilty. So wow. going into Vordire and trying to pick a jury it was, it, dude. There's like that. Sh it should never have been tried in that county. It was ridiculous. How many? How many jurors did you? How many in Voidier? How many people did you have to? Go Hundreds, through? dude. And, and it. And we didn't like. Typically, when you do a, a, a Vordier, it's like you do them in panels. Mm -hmm. right? Like you, you'll they'll put like four or six jurors in a box, and then you know we get to do the questioning. The judge blasts the, you know, kind of the baseline questions to see if anybody's conflicted out, if they know the defendant or any of the cops or the lawyers and all those types of things. Do you have any kind of, uh, you know, like moral dilemma with the fact that it could be a death penalty case that you don't think that you could be able to sit as a juror, you know, so all those questions are asked and then we dig into our stuff typically. And then, you know, we can use our challenges or we can, you know, try to have them removed for cause. Like if they say, no, yeah, no, I think he's guilty and no one's changing my mind. If like we have a guy like that, you know, and the judge says the judge will try to rehabilitate him and say, okay, well, I understand that you have that thought coming in, sir or madam. And what I'm asking you is, do you have the ability, despite the fact that you think that right now, do you have the ability to listen to the facts and evidence and then apply the law? And if that person just says, yes, the judge considers that person to be rehabilitated. Think about how scary that is. Yeah. That person's not rehabilitated. Right. That person has formed it. Have you ever had an argument, Jason, online trying to convince somebody about something <laughs> that you absolutely know is right? And yep. it's like, oh, it's brick wall. It's the right. same thing in a court right. of law. It's no different. You know, so with trying to pick that jury, man, we did it individually. Yeah. It took like we took people into a room individually. One by like one, it, which wow. is never done, dude. It it took wow. forever. Wow, and we, like you know, and and then so yeah, to to go back to him being tranquilized. So they start rolling this guy out, and he's my client, and he's sleeping, or he appears to be sleeping because he's tranquilized. If you're sitting on a jury during a death penalty case, think about the the Murdoch thing. Alec uh, Murdoch is the uh, South Carolina attorney in the South Carolina Low Country who was convicted of murdering his 22-year-old son, Paul, and his wife. He was convicted earlier this year, primarily because he lied about going down to the kennels where they were killed. And his argument was that he lied because he didn't trust the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED as they're called. He also stole from many, many of his law clients. And like how all of us were on the sidelines, just talking about every single reaction that Murdoch had. Was he lying? He's, oh, look at his fake crying. Oh, I don't even see tears. It's just snot coming out of it. So imagine if you're a jury and you're looking at a guy sleeping through his death penalty case. Yeah. It didn't matter, it didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter. It didn't matter the science, which you will hear, didn't in any way support 
a conviction in this case. Like that, like How I, could I judge possibly consider a guy sleeping during his penalty phase as being able to effectively assist his counsel. Dude, like, and we, we tried it right. He had stopped speaking to us for the six months leading into trial. And remember it took three years to get it. Like not. And when I say not speak, I mean, not a word. He wow. didn't say, he did not say he went through his entire trial and didn't say one word to us during wow. the entire trial, which is unheard of. Right. And it's, it's either one of two things. It was the greatest show of willpower in the history of mankind. Seriously doubt that one. Yeah. Or, or it was, it was true. Like he was incompetent because I, I once again challenged it right before trial. And I made that exact argument that you just said. And Did they like, say no, he was lingering? Yes. That's wow. What they said. That's exactly wow. what they said. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, man, it, it was, uh, yeah, that, that case was something else, you know? And it's like, it's that, that narrative that, that they came up with is just compelling, you know? And, and there's, there's red flags for certain. Like, in, in the, going into that season, I was very clear. Like, first of all, like, like I had to, blow away the concept that that defense attorneys don't care about the victims that is absolutely untrue like i i have i'm a empath through and through and every case devastates me when there's somebody that's lost their life it's like and you could tell when you listen to my podcast how much respect i give to the victims and memorializing who they were and you know who they were to everybody and and just yeah you tell their story yeah. yeah, man. You know, because it's important. It's what the case is really about. You know, it's about the, all of these cases, all these true crime. That because you know that's the thing. There's this push to turning you know like true crime podcasts to kind of need to look. Creators need to look themselves in the mirror and not worry about making money in terms of just you know uh, cashing in on somebody else's misery and and realizing that the, this these aren't stories. These are recounts of somebody's life. And that there's people out there that are still living with that pain every single day, you know, and, and like I'm hyper cognizant of that. And, you know, and I make sure in my podcast that it's known, you know, so, but that case, I went into it. I'm like, look, like, and I, I say it in the first episode, this isn't going to be me standing on my soapbox, you know, like framing it in a way where I'm keeping out key pieces of the prosecution's case. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to lay out every every bit, the good, bad, and the ugly of the state's case in terms of bad evidence for me and my client. You're going to hear it all. However, for the first time, other than the people that were sitting in that courtroom, all of you are going to hear the defense because no one heard it. No one heard it in Todd Cooper's book. No one heard it in the Omaha World Herald as the trial was going on. No one heard it in the dateline that I did afterwards or the 2020. No one heard our defense. I mean, I hired, dude, like this case is unbelievable. Wait till I get to the trial. <laughs>